of Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcasts.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcasts.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. All right, you know... We got a number of messages on our forums about last week's episode where we were talking to this guy, Lawrence Spencer, the quotes editor of Alien Interview. <laughs> and I don't know. In, in any case, we'll explain that in a moment. Well, we're not going to explain anything. But, you know, some people felt that we maybe overdid it. We should have dispatched him in 20 seconds and said, let's get on with well, the regular show. Well, it was a regular show. Uh, this is really simple. We we have to have guests on, right? People don't want to just listen to us talk, Gene, so we have to have on guests. Some guests are really good. Some guests are a little less than really good. This is the nature of this game. I think people need to understand this, and it actually gives me an appreciation for what they have to go to on other shows. For example, a show that's on every night. You, you sort of have to go a little limp, as they say, to have on seven nights worth of guests a week. It's not easy to find people to speak to in this space. And God knows, I mean, we've, we've been approached by some people that, you know, you and I have talked to each other, and it's like, mm, no, let's not do this. And then we had one interview we did where we put the time in, did the interview, and after it was all said and done, I, I called you up and said, hey, Gene, we got to kill this. It's just a terrible interview. So we do have our threshold that we sometimes hit, but for the most part, we've got a show to put out. And this person claims to have a document that he claims, well, he doesn't claim is legitimate. See, this is kind of interesting because, of course, other people on the forums were saying, well, didn't you get the clue he said up front that it was a work of fiction? And I don't know if these people actually listen to the show. I mean, he sort of explained on the show why he did that was to keep people from coming after him. I mean, he basically doesn't say that he wrote it. He said that he got this manuscript sent to him by this nurse. And he was clear in saying, look, I can't absolutely guarantee the veracity of that source, but here's the stuff. I, I just don't understand, Gene, why people think we're beaten up on the guy. I thought we were actually, I don't want to say reasonable, but I... I he think we, seemed to actually enjoy the experience. And maybe he's a glutton for punishment. Well, I don't know. But I got some very nice letters from him after we did the interview. Really? And he was only too happy to let us post the PDF right. or an electronic right. version of his book in our forums, right. which we did. Look, and, and the thing is, we said to people, look, read it, make up your own mind. So we're not, you know, it's interesting. Uh, a couple of the people on the forum said, well, this is uh, all about the fact that you guys are successful and people look up to you and they expect you to um, to behave. Now, anybody who's listened to the show and has really paid attention knows that I, I can fly off the handle. And I sometimes do. You know, when we had Greer on, I was pretty upset with the guy. And look, it, it comes down to a real basic equation. I, I care about this stuff. Probably not a good thing to care about this stuff, but I do because of my personal experiences. And I get upset when people make crazy claims, when people throw stuff out that basically is just noise, when people claim to have absolute answers to things, pretty much anything. I'm the kind of person that I stand up to that stuff. 
And Gene, you know, we live in a time right now where people are willing to be bashed over the head, abused, treated like dirt, treated like cattle, without speaking up. We, we really live in those times, and I have to say, I'm not the kind of person that can just, you know, shut up. I can't do it. I, I, I really can't. It, it, this is my mother in me. My mother had this. My mother was very opinionated. And it, at times, cost her friends. It made things socially a little awkward at times. I mean, that's the truth of her life. But in, in the end, she spoke her mind, and I respected her for that. And I try to do the same thing. And sometimes that pisses people off. Well, what are you going to do? Ultimately, Lauren Spencer came on the show. We gave him a chance to explain some of his stuff. I don't think he did a very good job of it. Uh, I'm going to say something now that you might not like, but there were people on the forums that thought it was weird that I'm the only one that read the whole book. I wasn't thrilled about that either. I was hoping that you and Scott and Frank would have also read the book. So, you know, I mean... Whatever, I understand, you know, everybody's got busy lives. I kind of wish everybody had been on the same page along those lines. So in that sense, there was some feedback on the forums that, that I agree with. But at the end of the day, look, we made the book available to everybody. We made it available to them before the show actually aired. People had access to it. You know, there were people that complained that we did that. That's like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Here's a free book. Well, I don't want to read it. Well... <laughs> One's putting a gun to your head. Well, I could say this. It's not that I didn't read the book. I scanned it. I read some parts of it, but I didn't have time to go through all of it. And unfortunately, that's a matter of life. And big shows have researchers who do that. You know, the host doesn't always yeah. have the time to read everything. So they have the researcher who is paid to do nothing else than read the books, suggest questions, point out specific <laughs> aspects of a book that might be worth further discussion. But as you say... Well, Coast to Coast doesn't have that kind of a person. Based on the kind of questions that guests are asked, well, we know that that's not the case. And also we know that they request that guests send in lists of questions for the quote-unquote host to ask them. I mean, that's a rigged game, bottom line. That's, not a, that's just ridiculous. Why even have a host at that point? You could just have an answering machine that was asking questions. Well, maybe you do have an answering machine, and maybe yeah. there is no George Norrie. There is just a robotic presence. Same difference. The bottom line is that, look, we get passionate about things. Some people are, are, are whacked out about that. And here we are, of course, we're going to now get the email from people saying, why are you talking about your shows on the show? Because it's our show! And we can do whatever we want. That's the bottom line. Do people not understand that part of the equation? It's our show. We can do whatever we want within within reason. Well, sometimes, sometimes reason not within little, reason. Yeah, sometimes yeah, well, we yeah. extend the range of reason. Oh, by the oh, way, yeah. the other thing I should mention before we go yeah. on, several of our very, very smart listeners. And oh, I'm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh. And paging Tom Cruise. Paging Tom Cruise. <laughs> pointing out that the alien interview says things that are quite similar to certain Scientology myths and concepts. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Very, very astute. I think we had a, a, a new forum member, a new listener, sign up to talk about that. They had sent both of us an email um, with some really good analysis and comparisons. And truth of the matter is, I, I try not to be too up on Scientology. I know enough about it to make my stomach hurt, but I, I try not to absorb all of it because 
you know, it's just kind of nasty. But in looking at that one email that we got, and I think there were a few people on the forums, but then there was one person specifically that had emailed a you and I, and I think you'd recommended that they go into the forums and post In this some case, of, the person who wrote us this letter, this person wrote a short three-paragraph summary mm-hmm. in the forums with a referral to a specific site where you could really take a look at what's going on and why the connection is made. Now, if that's right. the case, would this whole book have been a Scientology mind trick? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, did they take the time to write up a thing and send it off to this guy? What I've read is that down in their Florida headquarters, apparently they have a whole floor of their main building devoted to UFO research. So it's entirely possible. And boy, wouldn't that be a crazy guess to get on the person who's in charge of that division of Scientology? That would be very cool. It would also, of course, make our lives a living hell. But still, that would almost be worth the hassle. You think of it this way, if we're going to go out with a bang, let's do it. Are we going out? Is that the deal? We're going out with a bang? What's this? Are you you trying to to make an announcement here? Is it it the end of the Paracast? Not this year. That's it? We're finishing the Paracast off? That's all? We're done? No, not this year. Well, you just said it. You said, well, if we go go out, let's go out with a bang. So what, what are you trying to tell me here? I have nothing to say about that further. Is I Keith Ledger coming on the show? <laughs> what are we talking about? I think we're going to channel Keith Ledger in one of our future episodes. You know, i got to tell you, I saw that movie. I saw The Dark Knight. Here's the thing. Heath Ledger, phenomenal in the, in the role of the Joker. Really, truly fantastic. I mean, it made the Jack Nicholson portrayal in the original Tim, uh, Tim Burton film just kind of look silly by comparison. But, man, everybody else in that movie was like a piece of wood next to Heath Ledger. And I mean, like I loved Maggie Gyllenhaal in the movie The Secretary. She was fantastic. She was absolutely wasted in this film. You have people like Michael Caine, who had a few couple of good lines, few good lines, but for the most part, kind of seemed like he was walking through the movie. Gary Oldman was terrible in this. And and for Gary Oldman to be bad in a movie says something. So I I mean I, I think that had this movie not had Heath Ledger in that role and with, you know, sort of the whole hullabaloo surrounding his death, this movie would have been a dud. Well, maybe also the fact is that everybody else looked bad in comparison to him. It's not something well, that they yeah. were bad, but they looked bad. You know what? I probably agree with that. He so outshined everyone else in the film that when he's not on the screen, it's kind of like the movie's plotting. Then he comes on and boom, kinetic energy levels just go straight up. This is also a movie, Gene, that could have... Um, had maybe 30 minutes cut off of it, and it would have been fine. It was too long. It's just too long. And I like long movies, but this thing, it was just overkill. It's sort of sad to me that movies like this end up being such huge moneymakers because then it sort of promotes the idea that these are the kind of movies that people want. I like to have serious, dark movies. I mean, I love, I mean, it's not many people that love a serious, dark movie more than I do. Case in point, there will be blood utterly brilliant film. I mean, all the way around, from Daniel Day-Lewis to the Johnny Greenwood soundtrack, Johnny Greenwood being my favorite guitar player from Radiohead. You know, fantastic film, very long, with some really incredible cinematography. I mean, there was some beautiful effects stuff in Batman, but really, it was a Heath Ledger movie. Right. Everything was, else about he, it just... He basically dominated the film. He yeah. was the star, and he'll yeah. probably get an Oscar as a result. It's I hope so he sad. does. It's so I sad. He does. He, it's very he sad that this here. guy's gone. I, I, he totally deserves the Oscar. And let's see if the Academy, for once, for once, does the right thing. I, I will say, I remember the year that it was the uh, Bela Lugosi um, 
Martin Landau is up for the Bella Lugosi role in Ed Wood. And I remember thinking, if he doesn't get the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for that movie, I will hate the Academy forever. And thank goodness they awarded it to him. He so deserved it. Anybody who hasn't seen that movie, by the way, just utterly, utterly brilliant. The chemistry between uh, Johnny Depp as Ed Wood and uh, Martin Landau as Bill Lugosi is just fantastic. What and a, apparently great... it has a lot of relationship to the actual truth of their particular association with each other, oh, yeah. too. Absolutely, absolutely. Because remember, Lugosi, as famous as he was as a horror film actor in the 30s and 40s, oh, yeah. oh, he's he really, really down his luck. All right, David, you've assembled a special guest for us. For this I have episode. indeed. I've assembled him. Well, you basically, I think he comes built pre-assembled. Him up, you built him up from special effects at ILA. Well, here's the, here's the thing. So, you know, one of the things that I think we try to do at the Paracast is speak to people that, in, in many cases, are not the kind of people you're going to see show up on in paranormal uh, radio shows. I, I'm kind of interested in having conversations with people that fall out of the typical mold. We've had some of these people on the show, like my old friend Michael Miley, who uh, I think is a really capable researcher and uh, a real deep thinker about these topics. Uh, you know, we had him on, and he's not the kind of guy who normally shows on st- uh, shows up on shows. I mean, one of the only places you can hear our good buddy Jeff Ritzman is here. Of course, as well as his own podcast he does now, the Second Eclipse podcast. You know, we've had on various people, um, friends of mine, who in some cases have had paranormal experiences with me. Now, today we're going to do something a little different. And this comes out of um, a trip I just recently took to California. Usually when I go to California, I stay with two of my best friends there, Andy and Elaine. And Andy is an interesting guy. Uh, and and it, to be perfectly frank with you, it, it took a little bit of joling to get him on the show. I mean, I said, hey, let's have you on the Paracast. And he's like, why? <laughs> and and the thing about Andy is that Andy is um kind of person who's not going to really, how do I say this? He's not a flashy personality. Andy's very understated. And the thing about Andy is that he is both highly intelligent and also knows some really interesting people and has a really interesting background. So this episode of the Paracast, kind of in contrast to recent shows where, you know, we've had people on and we've been accused of tearing them apart and blah, 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 and, and being mean. You so mean. You didn't tweet the guest why you made him up. That's not nice. And that's today not an statement, to... by the way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so, so today we're going to do something just, just a little different. And I wanted to have my, my very old close friend, Andy Niedermeyer, come on and talk about, well, a few different topics. Let's kind of get the sort of the foundation going here. Um, before you do the foundation, yeah. on the Paracast, we have a very special guest, someone who you probably haven't heard on any other paranormal radio show, or maybe even any radio show for that matter. David, let's bring this all home. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the Powercast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. Hi. 
Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bazaar sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Andy, have you ever been on a radio show at all? I have not. I was on a uh, I was on a TV show one time. A long uh, time that ago. that, that cops that. show was it? That cops <laughs> show that you were on. No, it was a, it was a student television show that, we, that my friend Clark did up in Seattle on the topic of light shows, and so he had me on as a person who does light shows. It was called Meet the Maker. Uh-huh. <laughs> Excellent. Now, Andy, of course, being the kind of guy who back in the original day worked on those kind of crazy psychedelic shows for for bands like the original lineup of Pink Floyd. And the Doors, Andy. I remember when you told me that you worked at a Doors concert. My my head almost flew off my my shoulders. I was like, "What?" You, the, been a- the Doors concert? Yeah, yeah. That was a the festival outside of Seattle. It was the Seattle Pop Festival in about 1969 or so, 68, 69. Oh, and man. yes, the Doors. The Doors were on the show. Santana was on the show. It was prior to their first album release. And uh, I was I was a spotlight operator uh, up in <laughs> one of two spotlight towers, illuminating the show. You've got these insane stories. So that's that's really why I wanted to have Andy come on the show. There's a bunch of stories relating to all sorts of topics, but let's uh, let's just start right at the beginning, Andy. I was kind of really surprised. I mean, it had been years that I'd known you, uh, and I found out that uh, your father was a really fascinating guy so can we let's do the setup here tell us about let's make believe we're, we're at the therapist's office so andrew tell <laughs> us about our at the therapist's office dr <laughs> bietney is now going to oh, see his first patient Ba-boom. so so andy tell us a little bit about give us uh, give us some background on your father and assume that you know our audience knows nothing about you which they, they don't tell us some tell us a little bit about who your father was and what he was involved with Please. Okay. He was a, his career was as a physicist specializing in uh, cosmic ray, cosmic ray physics. He, uh, he was born in Richmond, Michigan, with a little college there called Olivet. After that, he went to Stanford as an undergrad to uh, Caltech for his graduate work. And while he was at Caltech, his mentor professor was uh, Dr. Carl Anderson. And as a student assistant 
with Carl Anderson, um, they they did some research, which this is in the 30s, the late 30s, doing some particle cosmic ray research, which led to uh, the discovery of a particle called the muon, and then the co-discovery of the uh, positron, the antiparticle to the electron. People currently and popularly know the positron as the functional part of uh, Mr. Data's brain in Star Trek, <laughs> his positronic brain. Yeah. So your, your dad is responsible for Data. He was, he was co-discoverer. He was sort of, uh, yeah, the... Uh, yeah, father, uh, stepfather, <laughs> father-in-law, father of, of, of data. Yes. Unlike the the father that we see portrayed in the actual TV show, and this is usually, by the way, where Gene ends up talking about television stuff. But we're not going to let him do that today. Okay. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're excused. So your father was intricately involved with the Manhattan Project, basically. After his work at uh, Caltech with Carl Anderson. Um, he went back east and was working uh, for the Navy Department, uh, Office of Naval Research, and a, a couple of different uh, jobs there. He was doing some research on proximity fuses, and somehow or other, uh, he was uh, brought to the attention of uh, Robert Oppenheimer, hmm. who came by. Um, I'm not sure how that contact was, was established, but Oppenheimer knew of him and came to recruit him for this project that he was involved with called the Manhattan Project. And they had some discussions, and uh, Oppenheimer told him what the project was about, probably under some kind of non-disclosure agreement. You would uh, think so. Yeah. You would think so. <laughs> and he pretty readily said yes, that he would work on this project. Um, Oppie told him that uh, they were, in fact, going to be working on a bomb, a very large one. And um, he agreed to go work, and then uh, very shortly after that found himself down at Los Alamos at the, at the laboratory up on the hill outside of Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. He, um, in, the, in the course of the Manhattan Project, they were working on a couple of different uh, scenarios for constructing a bomb. The first one was uh, uranium, and they were working on a uh, what was called the gun method of assembling a, a subcritical masses into a supercritical mass, and along with that, they were they had decided that um, plutonium would be another potential material for making a, a, a bomb from. And in the in the course of uh, trying to figure out how to assemble the materials, they discovered that plutonium reacted much more quickly, much faster than uranium did. If you tried to fire two pieces of plutonium together, it would pre-detonate because the neutrons are so fast that before the two pieces got, got close enough to form a, a, a supercritical mass, they would sort of pre-detonate and it would make a just a messy, uh, low-yield explosion. Well, my dad was aware of a technique which is called implosion, which had been brought up at a Berkeley conference in 1942. Um, so he thought about that, and he, he proposed that they try implosion as a technique for assembling a, a, a subcritical mass into a supercritical mass very quickly using basically an, an implosion technique which would surround a sphere, a hollow sphere of plutonium, which is subcritical, surround it with explosive, detonate that, and it would, it would implode the sphere into a supercritical mass very quickly. The idea was met with some skepticism among the scientists there, and Oppenheimer, however, he, in, in his 
wisdom. He was he was a very uh, very interesting person to be the be the leader of the project. He, at the same time, he was sort of skeptical along with everybody else. He saw promise in it, and he said, "Okay, go work on it." So he put my dad in charge of the implosion process, the mm-hmm. implosion division. So he went off to uh, there was a, an area at, uh, at Los Alamos there, off in, in some canyon somewhere, where he then started doing um, tests uh, surrounding pieces of pipe with high explosive and trying to detonate that first of all to make a, a cylindrical converging uh, uh, compression wave from high explosive to compress pieces of pipe to start. It was a simple, simpler method than trying to compress a sphere. They ran into huge difficulties in, in getting the explosion to, uh, the implosion to propagate in a way that would compress this thing uniformly. They had, they had a very uniform uh, compression to make it work properly. And um, so they were you know, hitting some some real stumbling blocks along the way mm-hmm. and they subsequently uh, brought in other people on the project to to lend more expertise to it the primary person that they brought in was uh, George Kistikowski who was a, a chemistry expert and, and explosives expert and what later evolved was a system of um, basically explosive lenses uh, high explosive shaped charges that were shaped at the sphere around this thing, and, and, and they were, the, the shaping of the, explo- of the explosive caused it to bend the propagation wave, the propagation front of the high explosive, into a, into a spherical compression wave. And of course, all this has to be very critical. I'm guessing the timing of that is really critical because it basically has to explode uniformly all the way around to create a uniform implosion. I mean, that's the whole point, right? Exactly. They were they were down to you know microsecond timings on these things, yeah. and that was that was another issue. It t- took a uh, quite a number of people to come up with these ideas and, and uh, timing modules and, and detonators, and uh, it was a massive effort to make that work. And so, but, but it it did work, right? I mean, basically, that method was used for the the first atomic bombs, right? Well, it was the very first atomic bomb, the Trinity test, was the plutonium bomb. They were very, very confident in the gun method using uranium that that would work. They didn't have to to build a test bomb for that. And, in fact, the Trinity test, as I said, was plutonium. The Hiroshima bomb, the first one dropped on Japan, was the uranium bomb. And then the second one on Nagasaki, that was the plutonium bomb. That was Fat Man. Little Boy was the one that was dropped on Hiroshima. Fat Man was the Nagasaki bomb. Hmm. Your father then knew when he was going into this that he was building the first weapon of mass destruction, basically. What was his feeling about this whole situation after those first two bombs were dropped on Japan? How did he feel about that? Uh, Very, very badly. He he came to he, he didn't go to the Trinity test. Mm-hmm. There was some kind of interpersonal um, feelings between him and and uh, the people that were other folks that were building it. He he was he was in a sense um, kind of squeezed out of the uh, implosion effort after a while in favor of Kisikowski and and others who had had these you know, later developments on how on how it should go together um, right but yes upon 
you know, realizing, you know, when the thing actually worked, I mean, his blessing on the whole thing was, he said, I hope the damn thing won't work. Said, I, hope, I hope the damn oh, thing God. doesn't work. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, boy. I'll tell you what, before we figure out what works. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to The Paracast with my two friends, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. What does work is we have a really special guest on the Paracast this week, Andy Nettermeyer, and he's telling us about some incredible background related to the Manhattan Project and the fact that his dad, Seth Nettermeyer, a physicist, worked on the Manhattan Project. I have to tell you how dumb I was when I was a kid. When they say Manhattan Project, I thought they meant the projects in Manhattan. But then I was five years old. But then I was five years old when I believed that. Of course, I learned later what it really meant. But you see where I came from because I lived in Brooklyn, and so well, yeah. there were projects in Manhattan, but not that kind of. Forget it. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> this was a situation where he, he sort of knew what he was doing when he was doing it, but it's hard to imagine what it would be like to know that this thing that you helped engineer was going to be responsible for so many people dying. I mean, at the time, of course, there was this idea that this is what helped really bring World War II to an end. Though, of course, there is a lot of controversy surrounding the um, the use of the atomic weapons at the time. You know, there's, there's some issues about whether or not the Japanese were really ready to surrender. And, you know, maybe this right. had been done as a way to sort of scare the Russians a little bit, saying, hey, look what we've got. Yeah, um, the whole notion of whether or not the bomb should have been dropped at all uh, was was an issue then, and the idea of a, a demonstration test was brought up where they would, you know, show Japan, okay, here's what we've got, and drop one, you know, in an area where it wouldn't really cause any damage or or right. death. That was ruled out because they thought, well, what if we drop this thing and it doesn't work? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, well. So, so they didn't want to have any, uh, you know, any false test there and, and have the thing not work. So, you know, they came to the conclusion that it should be dropped. Um, they did. And, well, yeah, the debate rages on. I mean, I think the general consensus is that had they not dropped it and proceeded with an invasion of Japan, that many, many more lives would have been lost. As far as the devastation of the cities, I mean, they were doing conventional saturation bombing of Japanese cities that caused more destruction than the atomic bombs caused mm. in, in whole. In this Over time. Two, yeah. yeah, two single bombs caused a huge amount of destruction, but far more destruction had been dropped conventionally prior to that. So, and then, of course, I mean, the horrors of radiation, 
sickness and all that stuff that, that happened. And, and you know, the well, you know, kind of an interesting side story to the whole issue of that radiation sickness. My my cousin's wife, she passed away at 39 of this very aggressive form of breast cancer. And the interesting thing was that her mother and her grandmother had been uh, Hiroshima survivors. Uh, and um, yeah, and and she was a very healthy girl. I mean, you know, yoga practitioner, ate really healthy. You know, didn't have, you know, didn't drink any alcohol. Just had a very clean lifestyle. And I think it was when she was 34 years old, they found this breast cancer in her. It was just like a few cells, and uh, it it really was very aggressive, and it it just took over her body, and she. She died five years later. I mean, I was I was with my brother and my cousin. We were the three of us were holding her when she took her last breath. But um, it was very intense. Yeah. But her mother had been a Hiroshima survivor, and her mother was relatively healthy. Though I understand that like a year or two after Linda died, her mother came down with cancer as well. So there was this question of whether or not you know, and, and I don't think cancer had been prevalent in that family's history, you know, before before the her mother's generation so you know it does kind of look like that there was a connection to the um to the original uh, uh, uh event at, at hiroshima now your father had these really um sort of weird feelings about this so what happened after the second world war i mean i assume you know, at a certain point the manhattan project was disbanded right yeah of course the, the los alamos laboratory continued on to this right. day yeah, they they've shifted their their some of their priorities. I mean, they they continued on doing doing weapons related work for for many years. Currently, of course, they're they're diverging a lot of their efforts to other other applications. Right. Um, but yes, after the war, he was considering a number of different locations to move to. Uh, he was considering Princeton. Um, he wound up at the University of Washington in Seattle. Where he went in, uh, let's see, uh, 1947, I believe, 40, late 46 mm -hmm. or 47 was when he left uh, right. Los Alamos, went up to Seattle, became a professor at the University of Washington for the next 30, 30 odd years, and uh, and uh, so and he took up, uh, went back to cosmic ray research, built a laboratory at, at, uh, at the University of Washington, uh, a, cl a cloud chamber laboratory. And just continued on doing doing um, cosmic ray research. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I wanted to bring you on the show, the people are probably wondering, so why is this guy on the Paracast? It's an interesting story, uh, but you know, like, what's Bietni up to here? One of the things that uh, that you and I have spoken about about your father. Well, at one point, I was staying with you, and I remember you brought out this box of books, and. These were all books about like UFOs and paranormal stuff, and I'm like, gee, what's this? And you said, well, these are some of my father's books. And I was like, huh? So, so tell us a little about that. Tell us a little bit about your dad's interest in those topics. Well, he, yeah, for for many years he was, I guess, what you might call a, a sort of a conventional experimental physicist. Um, mm -hmm. However, he had an interest. I'm not sure where. It, came from or how it started but he did take on an interest in in parapsychology and sort of how might how one might approach the study of parapsychological phenomena from a scientific um, point of view um, 
as scientists delve deeper and deeper into the nature of matter at that at, at smaller and smaller uh, dimensions, uh, the deeper they seem to probe, the stranger things get. Mm-hmm. And down to the to the quantum level, things get really wacky. I mean, they're just totally different than than our sort of macro experience, the physical experience that we're all used to. Right. Even even considering the macro experience down to you know the atomic level, that things things stay fairly normal down to the molecular and the, the atomic level. You get below that, and things get really strange. Well, he was sort of speculating, I guess, on how one might approach parapsychological phenomena from the... Um, well, with a scientific, sort of coming at it from a scientific approach. I mean, uh, it sounds to me like this was a guy who had done some hard science in his life and really was more interested in something tangible versus uh, you know, a belief system. I mean, I'm guessing that, that your dad approached this from the point of view of, I want to see if I can actually find some repeatable, testable results here, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, being a, an experimental physicist, they like to, to be able to conduct you know, an experiment and, and repeat the experiment and, and see if it pans out more than once. You know, just, just repeat, the, repeat the criteria and you know, try it again, see what happens. So I think maybe part of what prompted his interest was that in, I believe it was 1949, um, a colleague of his at the University of Washington um, in the physics department, uh, Ed Euling, saw something over Mount Rainier. Back in the 40s, 49 in particular, there were a series of sightings in the Mount Rainier area up in Washington um, of UFOs. Now, I should just point out as a preface to this that what is considered the first famous UFO sighting occurred there on June 24, 1947, where a private pilot, Kenneth Arnold, saw nine Arnold. disc-shaped or boomerang-shaped objects flying in formation. Right. So, yes, this was part of that series. This was, again, I don't know the exact year that Ed saw this. Um, well, who, who was the colleague? First of all, if we can name names here. Yes, uh, uh, yeah, I did. Um, Ed Euling. Ed Euling, was, okay. Yeah. And I actually have a, uh, some letters here. I was digging through a couple of boxes, and hmm. I found some correspondence here, um, a letter from my dad to John Wheeler, who was a physicist who, um, well, John Wheeler was the one who coined the term black hole. Really? Huh, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's a he's a luminary in the physics world, and there's a a letter here that my dad wrote to to John Wheeler. Uh, they had some correspondence about this very event, and I, I could I could read just a little piece of this. Yeah, no, please do. I think this would be really fascinating. Talk about an inside look. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> this letter is in uh, August 1974, um, and he he wrote to John um, said. Ed told me he had answered your card, and of course it was he, not I, who saw the object. By chance, I visited the Ewings at the cabin near Rainier just about the time Ed came back from the hike. I remember getting quite excited from his description and jumping immediately to the conclusion that we were under observation and probably were going to be confronted with intelligence from a civilization vastly more advanced than ours. 
Hmm. Your, your card seemed to imply that the photographs might support the attachment of a UFO label, whereas they were in every way consistent with a meteor, so, so far as I know. Ed's observations seem to have several of the qualities of a classical, in quotes, UFO. I have been concerned for some time with the meaning of these observations of UFOs and also with parapsychology and what I call the mind problem in general. In connection with the letter, I was somewhat disturbed by Abelson's editorial in the June 21st issue of Science, which struck me as a rather arrogant and even stupid attack on a literature which, although it may be full of mistakes and false claims, still, I am convinced, contains much that may very well be true and should receive much more serious attention from the science establishment. I took the trouble and sent a letter to science about a week later, now two months ago, and although I see no prospect that it will be published, I'm sending you a copy, which I hope you care to read, you may care to read. Now, I don't have that article that he sent. Right. But, so, yeah, that, that sort of illustrates what he was up to in 1974. So he was, this is like many years later, he was, he was deeply fascinated by this, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the areas of parapsychology were, are, are just so, you know, unexplainable and not, not easily testable. And so he was, you know, trying to, trying to make some kind of a bridge between his experiences of being a, a, a physics experimentalist and trying to kind of posit what might be going on uh, from a, you know, from a, a physics aspect. Right. Uh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Now, Euling never went public with this, right? I mean, he had never talked about this publicly. No, he didn't. But he told your father. He did. Well, yeah, my dad was was there right about the time he saw it. So yeah. Well. And so, no, Ed, Ed never really uh, never went public with it, as far as I know. Um, you know, he didn't want to. Uh, I'm sure he had concerns about his reputation as a physicist. You know, that was kind of a wacky thing to go public with at the time. That, of course, is something that still occurs today, maybe even more so. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, 
The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. On the PowerCast, we're talking to Andy Nettermeyer, whose dad, Seth Nettermeyer, worked on the Manhattan Project, but also had a clearly extensive interest in UFOs and the paranormal. And certainly today, we have the situation where former astronaut Edgar Mitchell talked about his belief, and that's gotten positive and negative responses. I mean, clearly somebody who has that kind of respect, if you admit to an interest in this kind of stuff, well, they look at you sideways and maybe from below and above, but they don't take you too seriously sometimes. True. Yeah, for, for certain people, I mean, it can be the kiss of death for their career. What about what about your father, Andy? I mean, was he talking about his interests with his colleagues at the time? Sure, I, uh, I'm sure during during uh, discussions uh, at, the, at the University of Washington um, every uh, Thursday or Friday they would have a colloquium at the Canard Tavern in the, in the University District where a bunch of them would get together and and have a, a colloquium, which is where somebody would you know have a sort of a topic of discussion and they would have a roundtable discussion about it, and I think this. Probably, although I don't know for sure, I'm sure it, it, it came up at some mm-hmm. point during some of these colloquia that they that they would have. But yeah, he was he was not averse to talking about it. I mean, he, he certainly had some curiosity. Uh, I suspect that other colleagues in the department maybe were not so interested. Um, but yeah. be, because of the fact that he was talking about it and public, he kind of caught the attention of people in sort of in that community because he, he was approachable um, and would listen to what people had to say about it. I think I showed you that uh, that fork, which I have. Uh, oh, yeah. No, we have to get to that. We'll get to that in a little while. There's some surprises here. Fork? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's some really interesting fork. surprises in today's Uh-oh. show. Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. Oh, oh, yeah. Now, now I'm getting tempted here. Oh, this is the one that George I want to tell, listen, I want to tell force. our listeners something here, too. While David was preparing this thing, he wouldn't tell me about our guest or yeah. about his reason for being. But, of course, I trust Dave. If you don't trust your co-host, whom can you trust? Who do you trust? Goodness. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I thought these are what make good shows. I mean, you know, I I, I talked to Andy about this uh, uh, just, uh, you know, while I was recently in California. And, and I, I told him, I said, I'm going to bring you on the show. I'm not going to tell Gene anything. And he's like, really? I said, yeah, yeah, this is good. I like doing this. Well, just in the same way that when I've talked about my personal paranormal experiences on the show, Gene, I rarely have ever given you any real warning about what I'm going to talk about. I mean, I just, 
I don't I don't want it to sound like it's scripted or anything. I want it to sound like I'm interested in your reaction to these things and I have some I think I have some really interesting friends. And I think yes, he's you one, do. One of my most interesting, interesting friends, friends yeah. right? I mean, I've brought some of my friends on the show. I mean, people like They're, Alan Greenfield and Jim Mosley, who some people might really like, and other people just don't <laughs> like him. So I have strange friends too. But Andy is—you <laughs> know—he sounds like a really nice, soft-spoken guy, and I'm really intrigued more and more about the story of his father. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about that. So, Andy, I mean. Your dad was obviously reading a lot about this topic. Your uh, your dad was immersed in this to some degree. I mean, when you when you start buying books about this and lining your walls with them, you, you sort of fall into the rabbit hole. Um, do you know if he ever saw a UFO? I don't believe he did. He never talked about having seen one, but he was obviously fascinated with them. I mean, this this you know, stories abound <laughs> with all these events, and he certainly talked to people who claimed to have Ed Euling among them. I think Ed was probably the first one. Mm-hmm. And Ed was certainly a very credible witness. And that, you know, that may have may have sort of been the foundation of maybe his, his beginning in this kind of thing. Um, certainly he encountered people with less credibility. And uh, but, he, but he maintained the interest in it and, and saw, you know, enough enough credibility among people who had seen things to, to sustain the interest in it. Any other paranormal stuff? I mean, uh, you know, given that he was interested in parapsychology, did he ever see a ghost? I mean, did he ever tell you any any stories about anything that we would today call paranormal? Uh, not not from his personal experience. I don't recall any any particular stories that he he had about any encounters or or went to see any kind of events or or, or any of that. He, he just had this great interest in it and talked to other people who who did. And I don't know. He just had a, a real fascination with it, and, and being a scientist uh, was, you know, trying to, I suppose, analyze it in a certain way, um, try to find a, you know, a rational explanation for it, um, right. knowing that there, of course, may not be any kind of rational explanation. Right. But he was willing to, you know, look at it and take a shot and, and try to, try to sort of apply what he knew from physics and quantum physics and interactions among I mean he had some interesting sort of thought experiments about communication between um, you know particles for instance there are there are things like like um, conservation of spin where you have two particles in a closed system and the the sum total of what's called the spin of the particle which is analogous to a top like an electron has a spin sure. of, of one or minus one it's spinning one way or the other and if you have a closed system with two of them, and you reverse the spin on one, the other one reverses to conserve spin. It's a it's a principle of physics. Mm-hmm. And so if you take this closed system and you separate these two particles by a very long distance, flip the spin on one, the other one flips immediately. So what is the mechanism of communication between them over distance that maintains this connection that one knows what the other one's doing? So, so he, he was doing active research into this. Well, yeah, although something like that, you can't really take it beyond the thought experiment because you can't really you know, do that kind of thing in the practical world. But, you know, the theory is there, and he was trying to apply, you know, certain theories of physics to how, you know, paranormal or, or psychological, parapsychological events might might work. I have a, another 
think it was which is an abstract of a paper that he wrote in which he gets fairly detailed into in in uh you know sort of particle theory and how it, how it might apply it I don't want to read very much of that um <laughs> Somewhat uh, nerdy, yeah. Yeah, somewhat nerdy. Technical nature, um, yeah. Okay, right now we're putting on our educational hats, and ladies and gentlemen, we <laughs> want you to sit back, relax, enjoy, because we're going to teach you something, I hope. Maybe. I, I'll, I'll read just a little bit of it, um, just a little bit of the beginning here. Um, where All it right. says, the main results of parapsychology, even some that may be controversial among those working in the field, are accepted as a working hypothesis in attempting to find a physical basis for psi, such PSI, psychological right. parasite. Yes, yeah. stuff, yeah. Yeah. Such an attempt might take any of several quite different courses as they have in the past, including a radical departures such as crazy spaces, more dimensions, more than one time axis. Uh, B, new types of interactions generally consistent with physical ideas but outside what is presently known. C, try to find things buried in existing physics that may be excavated by reinterpretation or by modification in ways that will not do violence to what is already known. D, approach from particle physics, new kinds of stable matter, weakly interacting coincident universes. This can, of course, really be included in A, parenthetically. Coincident universes is one of the crazy spaces that he mentioned earlier. Crazy spaces? Crazy spaces, yeah. <laughs> I think so, Gene has some familiarity with crazy spaces. <laughs> you may too. Gene. I am not responding to this. I Gene. It's if I just stay silent. Crazy spaces are paging you, Gene. Answer the page, Gene. <laughs> Hello? Sorry. I'm sorry to put out my Jerry voice. Now, seriously, Andy, is that a term that like he made up? I don't know that I've ever heard the term crazy spaces before. Well, crazy in quotes, yeah. Well, he considers that a radical departure from from sort of you know conventional physical considerations. Newtonian uh, physics, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, more dimensions. I mean, now uh, string theory has it that there are a minimum of eleven dimensions. For when did he write that paper? That paper you're quoting. When did he write that? 1970. That was definitely a forerunner. I mean, he was so so he was already off into that quantum mindset. Yes, very definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So your father was, and one of the reasons I really like you, I think, is that your dad ended up being a troublemaker. He's a little bit of an iconoclastic figure. And um, I know a number of years ago you showed me this thing. You know, hey, check this out. Uh, you were in possession of his Fermi Award. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what an, a Fermi Award is and why he got it? Uh, the Fermi Award is a government, uh, the Energy Department awards it. It was uh, established in the name of Enrico Fermi, who, among other things, worked on the Manhattan Project, but he was the first to create a sustained nuclear reaction in a, nuclear, in a reactor, uh, which was in, at the University of Chicago at Stagg Field. Um, actually, under the bleachers of the stadium there, they they... they Built up a, a stack, a pile, but that's why it's called a pile, of uh, graphite bricks uh, with holes through them through which they would insert uh, uranium fuel rods. And this pile of graphite bricks and uranium rods was the first 
sustained chain reaction that was that was created. <laughs> they built this um, under a bleacher. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> and, I mean, uh, oh, that's just crazy. Talk about crazy spaces. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So the the Fermi Award was established in his name, right. and it's it's awarded for um, well achievements in science uh, on an annual basis. Uh, my dad received it in 1982. What was his reaction when he got it? <laughs> his his comment upon receiving it was that uh, he said, uh, "Gee, I think somebody must have made a mistake." <laughs> <laughs> he, he was handed the award by uh, Ronald Reagan. Um, presented it. He was co-recipient. There were two recipients of the year he got it. The other was um, a fellow named Herb Anderson, who actually had worked with with Fermi, who at the time had severe uh, beryllium poisoning from inhaling Oof. beryllium into his lungs, Jeez. and he passed away a few years shortly after the after the. Fermi Award. Um, so he, he and my dad were co-recipients that year. Huh. And my dad got it for um, his work at Caltech with Carl Anderson uh, in co-discovering the muon and the positron, and then also for the Manhattan Project work. And as it but, said, as it quoted, the assembly of nuclear materials, <laughs> which is... But important. it sounds like he wasn't really... This is not like a high point of his life, I guess, where for a lot of scientists it might have been I guess for your father, uh, maybe it was a little, I don't want to say bittersweet, but he, he, it doesn't sound like he turned to Ronald Reagan and said, thank you so much, President Reagan. <laughs> well, he, he at the time had prepared a, a statement, which I never saw the text of it. Um, I wasn't actually at the award ceremony due to the work involvement back here. But he had prepared a statement to make, uh, I think, which was basically an indictment of you know, nuclear weapons and, and stockpiling and all that stuff. Yeah. But he said at the time um, that Reagan personally was a very charming guy, and it, it just sort of took the wind out of his sails at that moment. Mm, I'll tell you what, uh, before yeah. they take the wind out of our sails, that concludes our number one of our session with Andy Nettermeyer and some fascinating stories about his father, and we're going to explore that a lot further in our number two of the PowerCast. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog. The world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I. Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. 
Here we are in hour number two of the Paracast with the Jew and the Jew. It's Jew squared uh, with Gene and Dave. Yes, Gene and Dave's Paracast, hour number two. And we're talking to my old buddy, Andy Nittermeyer. So, Andy, enough about your dad. Let's talk about other stuff. Let's talk about George Lucas's secret chocolate obsession. No, no, no. I'm so God knows, Andy. Andy could probably illuminate some points about uh, about George. But no, let's. Um, I want to talk for a moment with you. I think it'd be nice to have our audience understand some of the stuff that you have kind of been involved with, almost uh, accidentally. So when I was uh, out in California recently, you, we were talking about all these topics, and you brought up some interesting stuff regarding remote viewing. A topic we've only touched upon peripherally on the Paracast, but you know some of the people involved in that world. And I'm not talking about Stephen Greer, because I think you also have a Stephen Greer story, but we'll get to that later, maybe. A Stephen oh. Greer story, yes, that's oh, yeah. tragic. <laughs> oh, yeah. But no, Andy, uh, tell us a little bit about the project uh, that you were, uh, I think, part mm -hmm. of the video crew on, revolving around remote, remote viewing. Yes, yes, that was sort of entirely a, an accidental uh, coincidence. Um, the, the the video project that I was actually working on uh, was with a friend of mine named Carol Daniels, who was producing a, a video piece on water birth, women giving water birth in water. Yeah. Uh -huh. And at the time, we were um, going to Russia the Soviet Union. The, the video project that I was actually working with at the time was with a friend of mine named Carol Daniel uh, in producing a, a video piece on uh, water birth, women giving birth, laboring and giving birth in water. Mm -hmm. And the, that project was taking us to Russia to do some interviews with a fellow named Igor Tchaikovsky, who was the first, I believe, the originator of the concept of immersing infants in water and then having women, pregnant women, laboring in water and then subsequently giving birth in the water. So we wound up signing up to go to Russia with a group of people, individuals and pairs who were also going for other uh, projects that they individually were working on. Among the people was Russell Targ and his daughter Elizabeth from SRI. He was one of the founders of SRI, Stanford. That's the Stanford Research Institute, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So what they were involved with was a remote viewing experiment. Basically, the scenario for that was that they were going to go to Soviet Union, to Moscow, and the setup for this remote viewing was that they had a, a colleague, Keith Harari, here in the Bay Area, down Stanford, who who was the Bay Area leg of the, of the experiment. They were going to be the Moscow end of it. Um, the idea was that they were going to find a person in Moscow to um, do, basically, um, they were going to coach this person on how to sort of relax the mind and open the mind to external input, to... Mm -hmm influences to imagery to you know um, just being receptive and they were they were going to find this person uh, set them up at a predetermined time she was going to do you know 
receive whatever it was to be received and, and then make notes, imagery, words, impressions um, that she was, was tuning into. And then after they did that, uh, Keith back here was to run a random number generator to determine which of five envelopes he was going to open. See, what was contained in these envelopes was a location, five different locations around the Bay Area. When he opened his envelope after they had done the remote viewing, he would then go to that location, um, make observations, just look himself and just make you know, mental images, look around the, the location, see what was there, take some pictures. And then after he did that, they would then contact each other and compare notes and see what the correlation was. So we wound up being, on the Moscow end of that, of course, uh, they came across, they, they picked this woman. Uh, I'm not sure how they determined uh, and made the initial contact, but it's a woman named uh, Juna Devadashvili, who it turns out was a well-known Russian psychic and clair sort of clairvoyant psychic person who had worked with a number of other Russian psychics and was sort of well-known in, in higher circles, political circles, social circles in, in Moscow. And so we wound up at her apartment and witnessed her doing her observations and making notes, and, and it was very, very interesting. Um, there were a number of people at the apartment, um, and then later on, going with Russell and Elizabeth back to their hotel and opening the envelope after they called Keith to find out what he had, where he had gone and compare notes. And when they when they did, and they compared notes on what Juna had observed or had 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 noted, witnessed in her, um, you know, view remote viewing, right? And they decided very 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 happily. Elizabeth was jumping up and down with excitement that they had some pretty significant correlations in what Juna had observed and what what Keith had revealed about the location he was at and where it was. Uh, was the um, carousel down at uh, in the Embarcadero on the waterfront in San Francisco? There's a you know a carousel with the the horses and the uh, sort of the fairgrounds area there. What Juna had observed um, was like an overhead aerial view of something that was round and it had four spokes emanating at 90 degrees you know around the circle which correlated to the carousel in the center and the four approach walkways that, that came into it. She observed what she drew as an eye and what looked like a kind of a horse's face, horse, horse's head, mm -hmm. which of course are the, with the eyes and the, and the horses on the carousel. And then some uh, uh, triangular-shaped, uh, sort of pyramid-shaped structures uh, with the tops truncated, and in the postcard and background behind this was a row of houses with, you know, the the pointed gabled roofs, but cut off by a like layer. Cut of off, fog. yeah. Cut off right. by a by a fog layer. Huh? Really? 
Yeah. Huh. So, so they had some, some what they determined were significant enough correlations to, to call it a success. So, so you were there. You you were there to witness them opening this this envelope up, this envelope up, and and getting these results. Mm-hmm. What did you yeah. feel at the time? Did you feel that? Uh, I mean, what was your take on it? Well, uh, being you know sort of the skeptic that I am, I thought, well, it's either something real going on here or a, a coincidence. I mean, it's, it seemed like it was purely coincidental that the quality of what Junus saw versus what was in the photograph. I mean, yeah, it seemed like there was something going on there. Now, what about her? The specifics of this uh, Russian woman. I mean. So you're in her apartment. You're you're watching this go on. Talk to us a little bit about that, because when you hear about people who claim they have psychic abilities, one of the things you often find is that they're surrounded by handlers. Did she, did she have handlers? I don't think so. Not per se. Um, she actually expressed some doubts about her ability to do what they wanted her to do. But, you know, at the time, I had no idea. Um, who she was, as far as right. being a, a recognized person in, you know, in the psychic world uh, uh, in Russia, she did have a very interesting apartment in that she had lots of um, uh, religious icons on the walls, mm-hmm. um, and she was a very striking-looking person, uh, probably in her 30s, I guess, at the time. A very lovely, striking person, uh, you know, lots of energy and and. Uh, but as far as handlers, I didn't notice really that she had handlers per se. Uh, there were there were other people in the apartment. I'm not sure who they all were. However, we did have, as it turned out, probably a, a KGB observer. Oh, really? Uh, we had we had these uh, Polaroid cameras, Carol and I, that we brought with us to do what we were calling Polaroid diplomacy, which was. Taking Polaroid pictures of people and then giving them out, you know, because at the time photography was not a very a real common thing over there, and people were fascinated by by you know getting these pictures immediately. We snap a shot and hand them the picture. So we were taking some photographs in the apartment of the proceedings and kind of passing them around, and they didn't all come back. <laughs> a number of them, uh. disappe- a number of them disappeared. And this, this little guy who had been kind of following this group of people, Carol and I and Russell and, and Elizabeth and the other people in our group, this guy kind of showed up at various times, and he showed up at the apartment. At that time, so you, you, you weren't allowed to just wander around at will by yourself. You had to have, um, there's an a agency there called Intourist, which when, when tour groups came, to the Soviet Union, they were always accompanied everywhere they went by this interest guide. And so we had our interest guide. We drove our nuts because everybody was indeed going <laughs> off in different different directions. It was like, you know, the, the mother hen trying to keep the chicks together, and they were just scattering in all different directions, drove our nuts. Yeah. But this this other person, this, this little guy, kept showing up at different places, and he showed up at this apartment. And a number of photographs disappeared, and we we're quite sure that he was sort of in the line of being passed along by this, on these photographs, and he would just pocket them. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, 
passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Andrew Nettermeyer on the Paracast, and not only did we get some fascinating remembrances of his late father who worked in the Manhattan Project, he was a physicist, but we're discovering some of the things that he's encountered or explored, and I'm getting more fascinated by the minute. David? With regard to remote viewing, and we've explored remote viewing, I think, on exactly one show, and that's been mentioned peripherally in other shows. Did you come away with any particular impression yourself? This is something that is genuine or just one of those things or what? Well, that was really my own one experience with it. You can't deny that it, that it that there's something to it. I mean, to categorically say, no, it's not real, it doesn't work, I think is... is not a rational uh, kind of uh, response to it. You know, it certainly bears more testing, and I, I'm sure there's been a lot of it going on, and I'm sure Russell has done subsequent uh, tests with it. And, of course, at that time and later, there was there was all this uh, talk about how Russia was actually uh, recruiting and, and developing psychics 
sort of psychic spies to spy on the West remotely, and and you know it, it had this sort of sci-fi aspect to it at the time because those kinds of things are much more prevalent in at the time at least in Russia um, than here. Uh, sort of a sort of an accepted thing that you know psychics. I mean, there, there were quite a few um, practicing psychics and you know parapsychological phenomena going on over there, which I think is why Russell and Elizabeth went there because of that reputation that they have. But again, it's you know it's not it hasn't been you know scientifically analyzed and and really uh, determined that it's. You know, categorically, is something that that really works. Um, but right. I mean, tons of anecdotal evidence. Yeah, I mean, you can't well, deny that. Um, but you, I mean, you can't really prove it one way or another. But but there's a you know, substantial anecdotal record there of it. What bothers me about it is the imprecision. Even where apparently something happens that maybe can't be explained in any other fashion, suddenly we go back to the fact that you know what. How can we depend on this to get enough information to go on? If it's a spying technique, you'd like to think of remote viewing as being like putting a video camera in that room and being able to see what's going on and to identify it. But there seems to be so much subjectivity involved. That makes it kind of difficult, doesn't it? Oh, it sure does. Yeah, it, it's it's totally interpretive. It's not photographic by any means. It's, it's impressionistic and interpretive, subjective. So yeah, it's it's not a not a you know a photographically recordable um, technique. Now let's uh, I would just, I'd, I'd like to shift gears here for a moment because we had a bit of a teaser in the last hour about the bent up fork, and uh, astute listeners are probably wondering, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. So let's just go a veer off on a on a detour here. Let let's hear the story about. The bent-up fork. Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, my dad, having sort of come out with his interest in, in parapsychology and psi phenomena and all that, he kind of he, he attracted the attention of people in that in that realm and had a number of, of callers and, and people who wanted to talk to him about their own experiences. And I think the fact that he was a you know. A, conventional scientist interested in that kind of drew a lot of attention and he was willing to listen to people right that's that's what really drew a lot of them is that they could come and they could talk to him about it and he would he would listen and be very interested and one of these people was this woman i don't know her name but uh i'm not sure if he went to see her or if she came to the house at some point but came and 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 did you know did the classical um, fork bending between the fingers? It's a it's a which I haven't showed David. It's a not a silver. I think it's maybe silver plated or something. But it's right. it's, it was not a soft metal at all. It's no, it's hard. pretty heavy. I can I can I've, I've seen this fork. It's it's pretty thick. It's pretty dense. Yeah, it's not it's not cheap fork that you get in a cafeteria. Definitely not. Right. The the stem of the fork has a has a at least a. 180 degree twist in it, and then the tines are are all bent at like you know 90 degrees and and sharper than 90 degree bends. And I've tr I've tried to apply some 
force on it, considerable force to untwist the stem of it, and it just doesn't go. It's it's very very hard. And you know, she did this thing for him and gave him the fork. And it, it, now, it, she did it right in front of him, though. Like right yeah, in front of him. Yeah, yeah. So you know, he he witnessed that. You asked earlier if he'd actually witnessed any kind of paranormal paranormal phenomena. Yeah. Well. Yeah, I guess that would be at least the one that I'm aware of. Chris, that kind of rings a little bit of, what's the guy's name? Geller. Yes, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Geller. Hey, Geller. C. That's the only Geller. Spanish I know, by the way, David. C, huh? You, you could also learn no. No is just no. It's very easy to remember. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, C, no. So, so this woman actually took the spoon end, uh, the fork, I mean, and, and basically... Right in front of your father did this. She bent it out. And I've seen the fork. It, it, I can attest, even though I have issues with this whole topic, I can attest that this fork, heavy fork, if you were going to preheat this thing to be able to bend it easily, I would think it would be hot enough where it would hurt your hand to, like, hold it. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, it's not a thin little, you know, piece of, like, metal. It's It's pretty substantial. I've held this thing. So I can attest to that. You know, of course, having looked into Uri Geller and and done a little bit of research about him, I, you know, the whole fork bending thing in his situation, I have some serious questions about, and I've seen people do this live, and and I don't know that I necessarily buy into it or not, but again, in this particular example, without having been there when this woman did it for your dad, uh, I, I can say that it, it's a very heavy uh, implement. It's not something that you know you would have done with minimal kind of pressure. It's pretty thick, and you know, and and I'm thinking now I should have probably taken a picture of it when I was there. Um, I could I could take a picture and send it to you. That'd be really great. I, I, yeah. I, I'd love you to take some close-ups of it. And we could throw up on the Paracast website. And again, this is not to say that you know we're we're vouching for the veracity of this woman's abilities. It's kind of interesting though that this woman came to your father. To, to show him this, and I wonder, I wonder what else he heard, or who who else approached him with bits of information that maybe his own internal filter sort of said, you know, no, this is not not credible. I mean, doing the paracast, we've had people approach us with some stuff that, for the most part, I think has been really questionable. It's almost as if people were approaching us to see if they could fool us versus right. bring us something legitimate. And uh, Gene and I both being native New Yorkers, that's not so easy to do. But, yeah, this fork is, is a really weird piece. I mean, it's definitely the kind of thing where you look at it and you go, well, this would take considerable force to do. And if it's this woman doing it in front of your dad, I mean, I, I, I want to believe that he conveyed the story to you in an accurate way. Well, what did he say that she did? I guess that, that's an interesting question. I mean, what, what, what actually transpired? Do, did he give you details about that? Well, it was sort of the you know the, the classical way that this is done, um, you know, holding it between thumb and forefinger and, and just you know rubbing it gently, and it just kind of melts, you know, it just sort of starts to bend, hmm. and it and then it can be twisted. So it was yeah, the, you know, whatever is. Well, here, here's a question for you, and it just occurred to me. I know in reading about Geller's experiments with this stuff and his demonstrations. Usually, one of his staff people provided 
the utensil. I mean, there, there, I've read yeah. stories where you know he was given something from someone else and said, "Oh no, I, I can't do this with this," which of course brings up lots of flags. So I don't. I'm asking you this for the first time. I don't know. Was that your dad's fork? No. All right. So no. she brought the utensil to him. As far as I know, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, she had she had approached him and wanted to meet him and. And uh, yeah, so I don't think he was prompted to bring it forth. <laughs> All right. All right. So she had this on her. So, I mean, from a skeptical point of view, that, of course, throws some flags up, uh, you know, that she had this on her. I mean, there's always the possibility that something's been tampered with or prepped ahead of time. Though I will tell you, having actually held this fork in the past, it, it's kind of hard to see how you could really get away with this. Because I know that uh, I remember the first. It was years ago when you first showed it to me, and I kind of like like took it and thought, oh, you know, I'll see how 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 tough this is. And I mean, I tried to do a little bit of bending on it, and I was like, no way, it wasn't going to bend for. And I'm a pretty yeah. strong guy, and it wasn't wasn't going to happen. Especially that that kind of like long twist along the actual length of it. That right. one is like right. that's you know just that's like, a hard well, one. That's a real hard one. And of course, you do you have this thing next to the psycho knife? <laughs> uh, excuse me, excuse me. Explain the psycho knife. Uh -oh. The psycho knife. Uh -oh. The psycho knife. Andy, psycho Andy, knife. tell us a story about the psycho knife. Before we do that, brain tonic. The smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink, designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. In a world where UFO conventions are completely, utterly boring, comes something new from a whole bunch of people who are trying to do something new. The Culture of Contact 2008 UFO Festival. Visuality. Starring Stephen Bassett. David Biedney. Dr. William J. Burns. David Hatcher Childress. Patricia Gordon. Richard Dolan. Bud Hopkins. Ellen Blognow. Michael Mannion. Melissa Reed. Jeff Ritzman. Giorgio Sucolos. <laughs> Jeremy Vaney. And Farrier Duzo. Special President. Presentations by Combustion Motor Corporation, Masahiro Kahata, and the world premiere of the silent but deadly truthful illusion of truth. For more information and to order tickets, please visit www.cultureofcontact.com. <laughs> Once again, that's www.cultureofcontact.com. Card subject to change. You could be screwed financially. Probably not, though. <laughs> You are Luke Aaron with Jesus and Luke David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Andrew Nettermeyer <laughs> on the Paracast. And, you know, we've talked about his father's 
very deep interest in the strange and unknown about some of the things he may have encountered. And now we bring you to the pace de resistance. I think. Well, not not exactly. See, well, not exactly, but the psycho knife. Okay, tell us about knife. the psycho knife. The psycho knife is one of a number of knives that was actually on the set of Psycho when it was being filmed. How did we get this knife, you might ask? We have a friend, had a friend who's passed away, named Bruce Herbert, who the name may sound familiar. Indeed, uh, he was the son of Frank Herbert of Dune fame. He had... I'm not sure how he came across it. Um, he'd been in, in Los Angeles for a period of time and met somebody who had been on the set of Psycho when it was being filmed and had one of their set knives, one of the prop knives, and gave it to him. So this is one of a number of them. It's not the only one, um, but we don't know which one was actually used in the scene, the famous the scene. scene. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's possible it was this one. It could have been one of the others. I don't know how many there were, but but this was one of the set of psycho knives that was on in the movie. And we Bruce left it to us. He he passed away uh, in gee, it was ninety two or so. Among a few other things, left uh, the psycho knife. Another piece that he left was a, a piece of uh, one of the original Death Stars from Star Wars. And a, and a communicator pin uh, that uh, from Star Trek that uh, uh, Captain uh, not Kirk uh, the next next generation uh, Picard 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 yes Picard war yes number one yes engage make it so engage number one yeah this is actually the, the the communicator thing was hanging on the wall in in Andy's house for a long time and it's funny when you see these things up close I mean they're they're always more interesting when you see them in films. When you see them up close, you're like, wait a minute, that's just like yeah. made out of plastic. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny when you actually get to, get close up to these things. Now, the, th the thing is, and uh, I'll embarrass Andy here, Andy is considered in the Bay Area one of the preeminent video tech guru guys. So Andy gets called out on all sorts of really, really interesting projects. And I know, you know, we can only ask Andy about certain things because, of course, uh, when you work in, in the motion picture world, uh, typically what they do is they swear you to all sorts of secrecy with these really thick non-disclosures that say that if you say anything, you know, you'll give up your firstborn, yada, yada. And that's Meanwhile, only Andy, the lesser of the yeah. offenses. Oh, yeah. No, so Andy, uh, Andy has had um, quite a bit of experience working on a number of really cool projects. In fact, I think what we'll do uh, for this show, Gene, is that when we when we put Andy's name up on the uh, on the on the program listing, you know, usually we sync to some we link to someone's website. I think it'll be really fun if in, instead of that, what we're going to do is link to a little video that Andy made of the behind the scenes stuff at the um, mm -hmm. at the production of Pirates of the Caribbean. So Andy was 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 shooting with a camcorder. All sorts of the stuff, and you know, shooting of the miniatures and the which Pirates of the Caribbean movie was that? Andy, was that the third one? That was three. Yes, was three. Yeah, to me, they're all sort of interchangeable. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually uh, one movie that they made into three. I think it's that, yeah. I, I yeah, I could. Yeah. I would totally believe that. Yeah. But no, Andy's got a really great behind-the-scenes making-of documentary that. Uh, it's kind of like set to music. It's very cute, and you can get a really good idea for how this stuff is made. I mean, 
you know, so many people don't realize, especially in the in the in the era of computer graphics, that when motion pictures are made, not everything you see is CG. There is still a very predominant usage of what are called practical models, real physical models. Um, and uh, there's uh, some really great stuff that Andy shot of the behind-the-scenes making of this one sequence where I guess, what is it, Andy? Does the ship, like, turn over or something? Yeah, it was a sequence that was referred to as the green flash sequence where the, the, they induced the ship to capsize in order to get back to the to the real world. You know, they, they capsize it, and it, it goes into the sort of alternate world, and then they the timing was critical on, on getting it to capsize right at, right at sunset. Uh, the phenomenon when the sun just sets down over the horizon on the ocean that that there's a, a green flash that happens right after it disappears over the horizon so they had to time the capsizing of the ship <laughs> to the green flash so it was called the green flash sequence and oh, spent, a num- spent a number of weeks doing the the match moving to the, the of the model to the to the larger ship that was on set when they had the the cast and crew running back and forth across the deck to make the ship rock harder and harder up to the point where it actually capsized. Oh, man. All of the incredible effort and the work and the many hours that goes into this stuff and, you know, for scenes that end up on the screen for seconds, you know, just seconds, and it's actually kind of a little sickening to me when, when you realize... The sheer number of man hours. I mean, you know, Andy, in, in looking at that little piece, it, it is really stunning to see how much work goes into this and how many people are working really long hours to pull this stuff off. And again, when people think that everything's CG and you come to realize, oh, no, wait a minute. Because I remember years ago, I forget which Star Trek movie it was, when the Enterprise crash lands on the planet. And at the end, they're all like kind of leaving and it was one of the next generation movies and and the thing comes down and it kind of has this long skidding uh Star Trek uh, generations this generations all right so yes. i remember where captain kirk is killed off by the way oh okay there yeah, you go yeah. so i remember they shot the sequence for that the actual crash landing of the craft was primarily shot as a practical effect and uh, john Knoll called me up and said hey you want to see something really cool this is like years after I, I worked at ILM. I'm like, well, yeah, sure. Get over here, quick, now. Get, come over to the stage behind uh, the main building. And I went over, and they were they were getting ready to shoot this thing. Uh, this uh, big, well, I, 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 don't want to, I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it's pretty significant. I mean, the actual actual set that they crashed this thing onto is probably, I'm guessing, at least 80, 90 feet long. And they had this camera that was tracking the front of it. Because I guess in the movie, you see this thing right. unearthing dirt and stuff. It's kind of like skidding in the ground. Yeah. And um, you know, it's really funny when, when you see it in the movie with all of the enhancements and the music and the drama and everybody on, on all the actors kind of like, you know, in that old rumble thing. Oh, we're tilting back. We're tilting forward. It's kind of like the old thing from the original Star Trek. And then you actually see how they shoot this thing. And it's just like. Nicely made, but definitely fragile-looking model, and you know it, it all happens like in a, a very short amount of time. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, but I'm guessing that they would have shot that sequence with the high-speed film cameras. 
Sure. Right. Yeah. 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 They they do that because of the scale modeling. Um, there's there's actually a formula that they apply to the scale. If it's a one sixth scale or if it's one quarter scale, there's a, a, a formula that's applied to arrive at the frame rate that they shoot it at to mm -hmm. compensate the scale size to actual size. Right. And so that's why it's hard to shoot scale of certain things like like flames. If you shoot a shoot a flame at a certain frame rate, the actual motion might be right, but the size of the uh, flames is off. It's, it's kind of off. I know yeah. that when um, anybody who's ever seen Das Boot, there is a thing on there in the supplemental tracks, there is the director talking about how, I guess, the magic ratio for shooting things on water in order for the wave dynamics to look right is one-sixth scale. So uh -huh. that, you know, um, if, if you have a 60-foot-long craft in real life... Basically, if you want to shoot a miniature of that and you want it to look realistic in terms of how the water waves and the, the water dynamics interact with the craft, then you'd like have something that would be 10 feet long. Yeah. And at that the, point, the water works. Yeah. The, um, in Pirates 3, when we blew up the Endeavor in the, in the, in the sort of climactic scene where, they, where they, the uh, Pearl and the other ship go down along each side of the Endeavor and they're firing into it from both sides, and the endeavor mm -hmm. ultimately explodes. Well, we did that at uh, Kerner Optical in San Rafael here, and that was a one-six scale model ship. It was a very large model, and yeah. uh, shot with eight cameras. That's in that video that you were mentioning. That's in that uh, video. So we'll, we'll make sure to link to that video from from your name in the listing. I think people get a real kick out of that, and it's the kind of thing you, you probably would not find by accident on YouTube. But when you see it, it people are always really interested in the behind-the-scenes uh, stories of filmmaking. Because you know, now I guess in the era of the DVD, a lot of the supplemental stuff shows up on the DVDs, but um, some of it doesn't. I mean, Andy, you shot this for potential inclusion on a DVD. They didn't put it in there, so you put it up on on YouTube, and people can see it. And I assume that's copacetic, right? You got permission? <laughs> Should I even ask this? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I actually just shot it more for the crew. Just you know, I was just sort of shooting incidental stuff along the way, and some time lapses. There's also another little time lapse thing in there on YouTube, also. But it was more for the crew, just to have a piece for the guys to take away. And uh, so I made a bunch of copies and gave them out to everybody that was that was working on the crew. And then I uh, thought, gee, I should put it up on YouTube. Why not? And also, I also did get permission from the from the group that that the music came from, I called them and told them what I'd done and could I use the music and said, yes, absolutely, no problem. Yeah. The music kind of so, repeats, it's the, it's the pirate yeah, song. Yeah, it kind of loops it's, over. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty fast-moving thing. It doesn't, doesn't really dwell on any one aspect, you know, like a, like a, you know, the documentary kind of piece. It's more of just a fun, quick cuts kind of thing that jumps through yeah. and, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. So we'll make sure to link to that from the site. Tales think, from the uh, Tank. Tales from the Tank. Tales from the Tank. Yeah, they built two tanks. Forgive me here. Is that a way to get tanked? You boom, can, boom. yes. Oh, sorry about that. Tank. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. 
It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Airy Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.airyradio.com. Hi, this is Brad Steiger, and I'm in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Join us as we explore new dimensions of thought. Hey, I wanted to ask you a few questions. We're talking to Andrew Nettermeyer, and your personal opinions on a few things might be helpful here. And that is, you told us about your father's extensive interest in the strange and unknown, all the books he had, about some of the things that have happened to you. What is your personal opinion about all this stuff? Well, clearly there's something there's something there. Something something's going on um, that we don't fully understand. It's pretty clear that we don't understand all of the you know the dimensionality of this so-called reality that we're in. I mean, you just look out at the sky at night and think, gee, how far does that go? You know, where are we? What's what's outside that? You know, what what's going on here? The kind of questions people have been asking since the beginning, I'm sure. Only that, I mean, I know that we don't know everything by any stretch of the imagination. I I went to a, a lecture, actually, just parenthetically here. Back in high school, my dad took me to a lecture uh, by Sir Fred Hoyle, the British cosmologist. And he just, he, he ran the numbers. In other words, he, he took probabilities and just multiplied them together. Um, you know, what's the probability that a star is the right size to even have planets? Okay, that's one in, you know, however many million. What are the chances that a star of the right size has a planet? That's another very small number multiplied by the first one is a very tiny number. Uh, what are the chances that, you know, a planet was captured, that developed, is the right composition for even life to evolve? There's another tiny number. And all these very small numbers multiplied together is a is a minuscule number, very, very tiny, tiny, tiny number. And then he took the number of stars in the universe, which is an enormously large number, multiplied those together, and he came to the conclusion that it was virtually certain that there's other life out there. So, you know, you get somebody like him just just looking at the uh, you know the hard facts and comes to the really the conclusion that there has to be life elsewhere that we're definitely not the only thing going. Now, so, now this was before the Drake equation, right? I mean, was this derived before the infamous Drake equation? I don't know when that was. This was this lecture I went to was when I was in high school, so 60, 65, 66. Hmm. And I don't know how how much before that he okay. came up with yeah. this, you know. So yes, yeah, you know, 60s or earlier. Right. And that's I think that's a pretty at this point with what we know about the proliferation of planets around stars. I mean, I feel comfortable saying that it takes one hell of a big chunk of vanity to believe that we're the only intelligent life. And I I, I sort of think this is beyond debate at this point. I know there are people that won't believe things until they have absolutely physical, tangible evidence. I mean, that's. 
for a lot of people, that is just the way that they think. But given the age of the universe, given how long humans have been around, uh, I think it's not only reasonable that there's life throughout the universe, but really you would think that there is life that is thousands, certainly, uh, certainly thousands, probably millions of years more advanced than we are. And and it's interesting when you think about the technological advancements that we've had in the past 150 years. It's just 150 years. That's it. You look at the things that we've done, and when you extrapolate out from here, I mean, this is where science fiction is just so fascinating because even extrapolating out 100 years, I think it's almost impossible to really, really get uh, get some real handle on where we will be technologically, much less a thousand years. I mean, and this is assuming, of course, we don't destroy ourselves on the planet. But you know, you go ten thousand years out. I think it's very likely that we we probably won't look the same anymore. I mean, especially again if we if we continue to go on the current track. You know that 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 goofy, really fun Pixar movie, Wall-E. For for anyone who's seen it, I mean, they portray humans have been out in space for. X number of thousands of years, and basically, you know, they've 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 kind of become glued to these little motor motor seat things, these little uh, right. self-contained pods that have screens in them. Their their legs and feet have atrophy. They've you know just gotten completely overweight, obese. And um, I think it well, there was a one scene in that movie that's really telling, where you see the the um, they're in, I guess on the bridge of this ship that has all the humans, and you see these. These portraits on the wall of the captains of the ship, and it starts with sort of a very statuesque, chiseled-looking, you know, a, a muscular guy. And, and as the years go by, the chin right. gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and yeah. and you end up with the current guy who is just as you know, sort of big, overweight oaf. And um, when you stop and project out in other ways that are pro- probably more reasonable and, and realistic. I think this is where people come up with ideas like, hey, maybe some of the UFOs that we see and some of the small creatures that we see might be from our future. You know, when you say that, people go, oh, you know, that's really weird. That's just unlikely. And, I mean, for my money, I think that's as likely as an explanation as anything else at this current time, given the lack of knowledge and understanding that we have of this. And I think that's entirely possible. And, and of course, the thing that is always worth mentioning is that Sourcing of paranormal phenomena doesn't have to be you know, tied to one single thing. And I think that's always really important, especially if you're going to be in any way scientific about this, is just to realize that, hey, you know, there are lots of reasons that things happen. There are lots of sources for certain types of things. And in the case of, you know, certainly UFOs, it's entirely reasonable to think that, you know, we might be dealing with, Interdimensional creatures, extraterrestrial creatures, extratemporal creatures, any or all of the above. And so that, I mean, you know, that's just, I'm still on the fence about what all this stuff sources from, where they source from. Yeah, well, there's some pretty substantial speculation and, and even evidence that even life on Earth uh, was sort of salted here from extraterrestrial sources. I mean, you know, meteors coming in carry substances that are organic and were, were carried here from other places. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. very possible that life here started from something that came from out there. There's some 
pretty, seemingly pretty solid evidence to that effect. I mean, it's not concluded, but seems to be pretty strong evidence. And also, you know, our, our it seems like our technological development is far outstripping our sort of socio-political development. Mm. You know, we can build all these. Our, our tendency, of course, is to build destructive things and 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 then reapply them to peaceful things. You know, nuclear nuclear technology started out as a weapon, and now it's. I'm actually personally in favor of nuclear applied to energy generation, you know, to, to take something that started out as this horrible thing that we created and now turn it to something that's that's creative and sustaining and, and you know, usable and, and controllable. And, you know, we, there are techniques for dealing with the, the all the problems that initially emerged, um, you know, waste issues and containment issues and, and accounting for for the material and all that kind of stuff, you know, that's all doable. Uh, we just have to muster the will to actually enable it and do it. Well, of course, the problem is you run into sort of fundamentalist indoctrination. Just like you do when you talk about UFOs, there are people who, you know, sort of have these, these vested viewpoints and they'll defend them to the death. And I know that you speak to environmentalists, and when you bring up nuclear energy, uh, usually you get a, a very strong reaction against. Though that's actually, I think, been changing a little bit, given that You're right. it's been changing a little bit now. Um, of course, the problem is that you can just instantly trot out the photos of people who lived around the Chernobyl site. And you know those photos are heart wrenching. I mean, it is it is it is sure. heart wrenching and, and deeply disturbing. And you know you look at that stuff and you think, well, gee, that could happen anywhere. And I mean, where I well, live, I, well, the thing is, I mean, I live not far from Indian Point, um, which is you know the main nuclear reactor in the New York metro area, and it's a, it's a it's a point of a lot of intense controversy. Uh, you know, a lot of people want to shut it down. They say, "Well, God, if, if terrorists really want to screw with us, they would they would like crash a plane into Indian Point." And I mean, well, I don't know. I, what do you, what's your thought about that, Andy? Well, I actually heard somebody address that very issue. That terrorists are are not stupid. Um, the the nine eleven events were were very well planned out and. They probably know where all of the nuclear plants are. Uh, the plane that crashed in, in um, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. yeah, flew over any number of nuclear power plants on its way, and hmm. presum presumably to Washington, D.C. And, I mean, these guys aren't stupid. I think had they known that if they could have crashed a plane into a nuclear power plant, they probably would have. But I think they were aware of the fact that these things are not easy targets. They're not soft targets. They're very hard targets. They were developed with the idea of actually, I think they did crash planes into the containment domes, and they just kind of disintegrate the plane, and nothing happens to the dome because they're you know they're very very solidly built. So, and they, and they didn't they chose not to do that. Right. So. Uh, and the other thing, you know, about Chernobyl, um, you got to keep in mind that that was a 
a very old design. It was an unreliable design. It didn't even have a containment vessel. Really? Huh. No, it didn't. So it was a it was a dangerous design, and it was being operated by people that were that were operating way outside the normal parameters of how it mm. worked. They're actually sort of experimenting with it, and they had a disaster. And oh, so, to me, that's not really a valid um, citation of what can happen to any nuclear power plant now. Because none of them are built, none of them are built that way anymore. That's an old design. Well, it was dangerous. It was. But but Andy, yeah. Andy, no, you're you're just not with the program. You see, we talked to Dr. Stephen Greer, and he said that nuclear is so yesterday. See, he, he's got the better deal. Oh yeah, of course he's got zero point energy. Forget <laughs> yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. You don't have to watch zero point oh, energy people. on a science fiction TV show. You could have it in reality if you give his company <laughs> so many millions of dollars to produce some kind of proposal or whatever. Well, at the one event that I did go to see Stephen Greer in Mill Valley, guess who was there? But Russell Targ. And I talked <laughs> to tell. Russell after. Yes. And I spoke to Russell after the event, and I said, Russell, what do you think about this? And Russell said, Show me, you know. He said, "Disclose something to me. Let me see it." <laughs> now, how long? How long there. ago was that, Andy? How long ago? When? When did that? When did you attend that? Um, well, a year ago, on the order of a year or so. All right, was, fairly yeah. recently. Yeah. And this was what and kind of was, a meeting? It was was? Last, let's see. It was in. It was in. Uh, I guess it was probably summer, about a year ago. Yeah. Okay. And. and what kind of meeting was this? Who was? Do you remember who was hosting this? Gee, I don't remember the fellow's name. It was this organization that I get emails from them. Um, uh, was it like a paranormal organization, or was it a new? Well, was it a? No, they they host uh, kind of a variety of different people at different times. You know, musicians, okay. artists. Uh, you know, they had Stephen Greer, and um, oh, let's see, was it? No, well, now, I'm, well, now, wait a minute. Don't worry about that now. So, why yeah, did you go to this? I'm just curious. Why did you? How did you end up attending this? A friend of mine, uh, uh, Clark, had become aware of, of this meeting, and so I, I went with him. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I was, you know, I heard about Stephen Greer, I thought, well, okay, it'd be interesting to to hear what he has to say. Um, right. And then, just coincidentally, Russell was there. I thought, wow, this is cool. And you know, after listening to it, um, I kind of had the same. Reaction is Russell as well. Okay, this is the disclosure project, so disclose something. You know, mm. show, show me the beast. You know, where is it? Nothing. They said at the, he said at the time that you know they were on the verge of that year, last year, oh, um, yes. disclosing something by the end of the year. Okay, that's the standard. We are on the verge of something, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, we're on the verge of a great disclosure. The information will be out before the end of the year, before the next year, before the year after that, hopefully yeah. before right. 2012. Yeah. Two thousand twelve seems to be I've heard that you know I hear two thousand twelve. And of course once we get to two thousand twelve it'll be really two thousand fourteen. We misread the calendar. Ah. Yeah. Right. You forgot the jump years, man. The leap years. Okay, yeah. but we didn't have leap years in the Mayan calendar, uh, right? We also didn't have chocolate in the Mayan calendar. Well, between Jesus and chocolate. Right. I think you've explained the entire paranormal yeah. mystery, the entire realm of the unknown. They had coca. 
Oh yeah, no, they had the good stuff. Right. That's right, Coca. Yeah. Oh man, yeah, they, they were oh, they were tripping please. the lights, fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> this is gonna. We better end this episode before it devolves any further. Oh my God, this is getting very syrupy. Well, no, Andy, Andy, here I want to ask you a question yeah. about that that Greer thing, right? Well, you you were in the audience. I assume there were more than a few people there, right? Yeah. All right. So what was your sense of how people felt coming out of it? I mean, like, what did Clark, and we won't mention Clark's last name because maybe he doesn't want to be mentioned on the show. What did Clark think of the whole thing? Well, he's, he's, a, he's a fan of, of Greer and, and um, hmm. a number of other, um, you know, sort of UFO-related uh, folks. And, um, you know, he's, uh, along with everybody else, is, is awaiting the disclosure. Um, uh, all right. Probably is thinking it's going to happen. I'm, you know, I, I hope it does, but uh, so far it hasn't. And by the way, Gene, just for reference sake, uh, Clark is someone who, I may have mentioned him on the show when we were talking about the Billy Meyer stuff. Clark actually met Billy Meyer. He, he went and visited mm-hmm. Meyer at his home in Switzerland. Right. Um, so it, it, Clark is an interesting. I love Clark to death. Sometimes I wonder about some of his thoughts about this stuff. I know just in the last couple of years, I've talked to Clark about the, the the Meyer photos, and you know Clark's feeling is, oh yeah, those early photos are amazing. Well, gee, Clark, what do you think about the later stuff? Well, I don't know exactly, huh? but well, those those early photos are just great, and it's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting because what you what you realize is that perfectly intelligent, very intelligent people. I think Clark is very intelligent. Perfectly intelligent people can believe in really, in many ways, just silly stuff. I don't want to say weird stuff because God knows I've seen enough weird stuff, but silly stuff. You know what? Before it gets too silly, Andrew, we have just a moment left to share this time with you. We'll have that link up at the website. But is there any place that our listeners can find out more about you other than just do a Google of the name Andrew Nettermeyer and we find lots of good stuff? Uh, well, I have a, we've got a website uh, which is just pertinent to the video kind of business that, that, that we do here in San Rafael. I don't really have any, like a blog site or anything else. Uh, I mean, that's just sort of a nuts and bolts business kind of thing with, you know, some video clips of what we do in our business and this and that, uh, which is www.goinvision.com. G-O-I-N-V-I-S-I-O-N. Okay, well, we'll put that up there because we're happy if we can get you a little bit of business. We're always happy to do so. Because I know there are people who actually listen to the show who are involved <laughs> really? in the entertainment industry. There are three or four people who listen to it, aside from David, myself. Of course, we know you listen, Andrew, right? Yeah. Okay. No, he doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't I'm, listen I'm, to the show. We have a I'm career, gonna... and this is, has to be the end of it, and we enjoy the stories. And I enjoyed meeting you, Andrew. And well, I enjoyed meeting you too, Gene. You're a great guy, very knowledgeable. I enjoyed the stuff about your father, and maybe we'll have you back real soon. I'm the Wait, do, I to, do I have to call him Andrew too? I can't call him Andrew. Hey, hey there, Andrew. Where the well, hell did the Andrew come from? I don't know. It's being formal about things. That's all. You know, because I'm old enough to be his father. No, I'm not. All right, all right, all right. Thanks for joining us on the Powercast, Andy. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, David. Thank you, Andy. The Powercast 
with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.